Hello, this is Archbishop William Laurie of Baltimore, and you are listening to Catholic Baltimore on Talk Radio 680 WCBM. Catholic Baltimore is a weekly radio program hosted by the Archdiocese of Baltimore, airing each Sunday following the broadcast of the Radio Mass of Baltimore. We are grateful to our Catholic radio partners for sharing with us some of the content in this program and for the opportunity to bring quality Catholic programming to the Archdiocese of Baltimore every Sunday. Welcome to Catholic Baltimore. I'm George Matisek, Digital Editor for the Archdiocese of Baltimore. Many Catholics are familiar with the story of St. Maximilian Kolbe, the Polish priest who volunteered to give his life in place of another man sentenced to death at the Auschwitz concentration camp in Nazi-occupied Poland. But there were many other priests, brothers, and seminarians imprisoned in concentration camps whose stories are not as well known. At Dachau, the first concentration camp built by the Nazis, more than 2,500 Catholic priests, brothers, and seminarians were imprisoned during the Second World War. More than 1,000 of them died, sometimes by torture. Joining us to discuss clergy at Dachau and how so many of them held fast to their Catholic faith is Dr. Eileen Lyon, a history professor at State University of New York at Fredonia, who has researched this topic extensively. Dr. Lyon gave a presentation on her research during the spring meeting of the American Catholic Historical Association held at Mount St. Mary's University in Emmitsburg, April 12th through the 14th. Dr. Lyon, thanks for joining us. Thank you. How did it come to be that so many Catholic clergy were imprisoned at Dachau? Well, Dachau was initially a uh, designed as a re-education camp for political prisoners. And initially, some German clergy were incarcerated at Dachau because they were deemed to pose a threat to the regime, either because they spoke against Hitler or their uh, policies were deemed to be hostile to the regime in some way. But as time went on, a, a much larger group of priests to be imprisoned there were those from the occupied territories, particularly from Poland. Following the invasion of Poland in 1939, you had a purge of the intelligentsia during which priests were specifically targeted because of the role that they had in Polish society. When they were first arrested in 1939-1940, they were sent to a variety of concentration camps, most notably Sachsenhausen, uh, Buchenwald and Gusen, which was a subcamp of Mauthausen in Austria at that time. But in December of 1940, they had decided to transfer all the clerical prisoners from the other camps to Dachau. And this followed on from uh, some intervention from the Vatican and the German bishops, who were aware of the a very harsh treatment that the clergy had been subjected to in the camps. And it was felt that the various concessions that were agreed to would be easier to implement if all the clerical prisoners were held at the same location. And hence, Dachau was chosen for this. And so those transfers began in December of 1940. Really, within six months, you had uh, everybody there, uh, pretty much. and. About 2,720 clergy, most of them are Roman Catholic. As you, as you said, there were about 2,000 
little over 2,500 Roman Catholics. The others were Protestants and a few Orthodox priests were included as well. So the, the clergy were separated from the other people in the camps? They were. They kept them in uh, three barracks. We were 26, 28, and 30. And in uh, 1941, in March, they actually further enclosed this area such that the, as they came to be called the priest barracks, became a camp within a camp. When, when we talk about priest barracks, of course, this included not only priests, but also seminarians, Jesuit scholastics, religious brothers, anybody who, when they entered the camp under occupation, had as the their title an order priest or an order brother. Sometimes if that was not indicated as their occupation, even though they were somebody who had committed to re- religious life, they were kept with the lay prisoners. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, they were concentrated in these three barracks. And what kind of treatment did they face at Dachau? Well, the treatment, of course, as you can imagine, in a concentration camp was quite brutal. They did have a somewhat better experience, if we want to call it that, than they had experienced at places like Guzen, where they were uh, subjected to heavy labor in the quarries and had a horrifically high death rate in, in those kinds of places. One of the conditions upon which the Nazis and the German bishops had agreed would be that they were withdrawn from heavy labor. Well, that helped them to a point, but what it there were also other things they were subjected to, such as medical experimentation. The Nazis felt if they were not working, that they would have to be useful in some other way. So they did horrific experiments with malaria, with temperature, um, these kind of really pseudo-medical experiments. They had no scientific value, but they were conducted nonetheless, and the clergy were often selected for these. They also, despite the fact they were supposed to be withdrawn from heavy labor, were also in periods of time subjected to doing heavy Mm -hmm. labor. Were the priests permitted to exercise their priestly office? For the most part, no. Mm -hmm. The ethnically German priests uh, had use of a chapel in Barracks 26 that had been created shortly after these priest barracks were erected. There was mass celebrated there in a somewhat abbreviated form because there was very little time allocated to this, and it was very, very early in the morning before breakfast and roll call. and So it was, it was really fairly limited. And, and for the Polish priests, who made up about 65% of those in the priest barracks, for significant periods of time, they were actually barred from the chapel. So they continued to celebrate mass clandestinely, in their barracks or at their work sites, or they relied upon some of the German priests to smuggle consecrated hosts to them so that they could receive the Eucharist. But uh, for the most part, nothing that would, we would really recognize as, as a usual exercise of priestly ministry, though they tried their best, mm-hmm. shall we say. Mm-hmm. I mean, they heard confessions of fellow prisoners. They when they could get access to the infirmary, they ministered to the sick, and particularly if they were in the infirmary themselves, often gave them that opportunity. So we see, during again, it, it varied a little bit depending on the time we're talking about. 
in the life of the camp, there were periods of time where conditions were much worse. Hmm. But in the periods of time when conditions were more livable, shall we say, they certainly did try and do uh, do that. But the the mass which was celebrated in the chapel, there was one priest who was designated as the, and he said the mass each day. And is it true that there were some priests who were offered their freedom in exchange for renouncing their priesthood? Yes, and I can't find any anyone who took them up on that. And it, it would not be possible to really say whether that's because of their deep commitment to the priesthood, which was clearly there, or that they didn't trust the deal. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did not find anyone. Uh, the Nazis, of course, offered that because they would they saw it as something they could use propaganda-wise and to kind of demoralize the others. There's a lot of, you know, in effect, psychological torture that's going on here, but no one accepted that offer, mm-hmm. um, though it was it was quite regularly made. How did the priest hold on to their faith? when they're undergoing all this torture, a physical, mental, and spiritual torture? The answer to that, I think, would vary from one individual to another. But many of them in their memoirs talk about how this experience actually deepened their faith, that when they were in a situation where they no longer had beautiful buildings to celebrate, the mass and you know beautiful art and architecture that we associate with European churches and cathedrals that that was gone and the respect they enjoyed in their communities and this kind of thing when this was gone that they are they felt that they were contemplating the faith in a much purer way and they talk about the way in which this really deepens their experience and that they understand what it is to rely upon God in a way that they didn't before. We're going to explore that topic some more and also look at the heroic actions of some of the priests of Dachau after this break. You are listening to Catholic Baltimore. Our guest is Dr. Eileen Lyon, a history professor at State University of New York at Fredonia. We'll be back in a moment. Catholic news from the Archdiocese of Baltimore and around the world with the Catholic Review. The Reverend Dr. Raphael G. Warnock invited those attending an interfaith ecumenical prayer service April 12th at the Cathedral of Mary Our Queen in Homeland to join hands with those near them. As all in the nearly full cathedral did so, Archbishop William E. Laurie joined hands with Baltimore Mayor Catherine Pugh and Baltimore Police Commissioner Daryl D'Souza while seated in the sanctuary. Reverend Warnock, senior pastor of Atlanta's historic Ebenezer Baptist Church, and spiritual successor to the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was invited by Archbishop Laurie to be the guest preacher for a prayer service to commemorate the April 4, 1968 assassination of Reverend King Jr. In his introduction for the prayer service, Archbishop Laurie said the goal for the evening was to remember that tragic day 50 years ago when we lost one of the greatest leaders our nation has ever produced, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And though we come together on this anniversary of his death, it is his life and his legacy that we come together to recall and to reflect on and to embrace, he said. To read more, visit catholicreview.org. St. Joseph in Sykesville kicked off celebrations for its 150th anniversary, April 15th, with a mass celebrated by Archbishop William E. Laurie. This weekend began the South Carroll County Parish's year-long jubilee. Throughout the year, St. Joseph will host a craft fair, a homecoming, a mission retreat, a gala, and many more events. 
We have so much to be thankful for, said Mary and his father, Neville O'Donohue, pastor. In recent years, the parish has seen growth in adult faith formation and hopes to expand opportunities for youth ministry. During the Mass, members of the parish who had recently received a sacrament were recognized. I've been looking for a place to call home again, said Jared Kingston, who was confirmed at the Easter Vigil after time away from the church. The moment I came here, it felt like home. To read more about the celebration, visit catholicreview.org. A Baltimore parish and a Catholic university are getting in on the fun as colorful lights brighten neighborhoods throughout Baltimore City at the third annual Light City Festival that kicked off April 6th. At St. Leo the Great in Little Italy, the streets were illuminated by multicolored eye-catching lanterns, while at Loyola University, Maryland in Baltimore, they hosted Luminous Loyola April 10th. The celebration, complete with cotton candy on glow sticks, student performances, and a lantern craft for children, was a huge hit. Find these stories and many more at catholicreview.org. From the newsroom of the Catholic Review, this is Emily Rosenthal. Do you want to know more about what's going on in the church and the world than you can get from your daily newspaper or local TV? Read the only publication in the Archdiocese of Baltimore that covers the church full-time, The Catholic Review. Pick up the print magazine monthly at your parish or have the Catholic Review delivered to your home every month. You can get fresh news every day online at catholicreview.org. Subscribe to the Catholic Review e-newsletter for twice-a-week updates. Just text CR Media to 84576. Find our app on Apple and Android and follow the Catholic Review on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest. Wherever your faith takes you, Catholic Review Media is ready to inspire, teach, inform, and engage. Read it today in print and online at catholicreview.org. That's catholicreview.org. You are listening to Catholic Baltimore on Talk Radio 680 WCBM. Welcome back to Catholic Baltimore. I'm George Matisek, Digital Editor for the Archdiocese of Baltimore. We are speaking with Dr. Eileen Lyon, a history professor at State University of New York at Fredonia, who has conducted research into the spirituality of Catholic priests imprisoned at Nazi concentration camps. Dr. Lyon, in your research, are there particular priests at Dachau that stand out for their heroism? Well, really there are many. This Thus far, 56 of the priests from Dachau have been beatified, and it's anticipated that there will be more to come, as 45 of the 56 are among the 108 Polish martyrs of World War II, and there is documentation being gathered for a second group of Polish martyrs from World War II, so I anticipate that there will be quite a number more recognized from there. Of the 56 who have already been beatified, perhaps the most notable were Blessed Titus Bransma, a Dutch Carmelite, and Blessed Karl Leisner, who was from the Diocese of Munster, and he was a deacon at the time that he entered the camp. And this was a a very interesting moment in the life of the Dachau priest community in that he actually received his priestly ordination at the hands of a bishop who also was a prisoner in the camp. And this was done because he was he was terminally ill at the time and 
just so desired uh, to receive that sacrament of ordination. You know, beyond the ones who've been already officially recognized, there, there are many heroic stories, I think in particular, at the very end of the life of the camp in 1945, the camp was struck by a virulent typhus epidemic, and the Polish priests had asked for permission to minister in the typhus blocks because the, the nurses and, I mean, the, and this is not a high-quality hospital. You know, this is really, you went to the infirmary to die. There, mm. there was not any what we would consider really valid medical care there. But they were so short-handed there, there was uh, the offer by the Polish priests, and that offer was accepted. And so Georg Schelling, an Austrian priest who was actually the dean of Dachau, Dachau had been elevated to the status of a deanery by Archbishop Fallhaber, and they had a special mass on February 11, 1945, during which, or just before which uh, the dean addressed the priests and said that there was permission granted for the priests to go and minister in the typhus isolation blocks. And he wanted each priest to consider that, whether they wanted to offer themselves for that. And this was a really, really difficult decision because even if you think of it in terms of which is the which is the greater sacrifice to minister in these typhus isolation blocks with a pretty high likelihood that you would contract typhus or to try and rebuild the church after the second world war and this was going to be a tremendous task both physically in terms of the the infrastructure but more crucially in terms of the spiritual life of the church after coming through this this horrific period but there were many priests who actually offered themselves to go and minister in the typhus blocks. And there was a selection process, and I don't know the details of that process, but 18 priests were chosen to go and minister in the typhus block. And of those 18, they all contracted typhus and only two survived. So we have a number of, of kind of martyrs from that. Those who went on, you know, there were dioceses in the, there were parts of Poland that had been forcibly incorporated into the Reich after the invasion. And in some of those Polish dioceses, they had lost more than half their clergy. Mm. They had either been summarily executed at the time of the invasion, the Einsatzgruppen uh, had engaged in this kind of purge of the intelligentsia or they had been sent to concentration camps where they subsequently died. So the task is, is a very difficult one. And there's also the, the kind of coming to terms and trying to address the fact that the torture that they endured, the genocide that had been committed, was something that had been perpetrated by the baptized. Mm-hmm. And so how do you try and kind of restart the spiritual life? Of Europe after that. How did all these experiences in the concentration camp affect the priests after they left the concentration camp? How did that shape their ministry to people outside in the outside world? Well, there's again a, a very uh, diverse picture. Quite a number of them are physically in very weak condition mm-hmm. at the time of liberation. Um, shortly before liberation, there had been death marches that had been orchestrated leaving Dachau. 
there were many who were physically in no condition to continue ministry. But there were others who returned to their academic and pastoral work really within, you know, a couple of months, which, you know, as I read some of this, it kind of surprises me how, given the, the physical ordeals that they had gone through, how they were able to return to ministry so fast. Quite a number of them returned to parish work. There are, I think, about a dozen bishops. A dozen of them became bishops subsequently. They participated in the Second Vatican Council. There were, I think, two cardinals. So some of them went on and I would say had took that Dachau experience and it, it then permeated kind of their wider discussions and so forth. So there, there's really, there's no one path. There were some that were able to minister very effectively that kind of approached their new ministries with a deep sense of humility and a sense that they had suffered and survived for some greater purpose. Mm-hmm. We have really w- wonderful stories of, of their ministry, um, but we have others who did not weather the experience as, as well. Mm-hmm. And again, it, it part depended on their physical condition when they entered the camp. Um, many of those who were arrested were very young. You know, they kind of had the physical strength to survive. Others, it was much more difficult. Mm-hmm. And we know a lot of their stories because their superiors ask them to write diaries or reflections about their experiences. Yeah, right? it's, if they were religious order priests, some of them were asked to write about their experiences. It seems that their superiors uh, had a number of objectives in mind. One was the healing of the individual to kind of be able to talk about this in a written form. In other cases, they wanted to document the atrocities that were committed to commemorate their brother priests who were martyred there. Another thing that is is quite interesting in their memoirs is the degree to which they really talk about reconciliation. And there is not a sense of bitterness, a sense of blame, particularly uh, in terms of the, the Germans who had perpetrated this. There is is really uh, a kind of a transcendence of that and a, and a message that they want to, to carry forward that, you know, in effect that they were these the dead wheat grains that had fallen to the ground to yield a rich harvest, and they want to really share that harvest as, as they go forth mm-hmm. after this experience. What has it been like for you personally to complete this kind of research and to dig into these amazing stories? You know, any Holocaust research is difficult because you, you are confronted with evil on a scale that's hard to imagine. When you see them able to forgive all that they had suffered, it, it's a very powerful witness to the faith that they have. So how can people learn more about this topic? Well, there is a, a fairly new uh, book that has come out by Guillaume Zeller called The Priest Barracks, Dachau, 1938 to 1945, published by Ignatius Press in 2017. This book has been available for quite a long time in French, but now it's available in English translation and easy to get from, um, as it's newly published. So I'd recommend that. Well, Dr. Eileen Lyon, thank you so much for being here on Catholic Baltimore. Thank you for having me. For Catholic Baltimore, I'm George Matisek. We'll see you again next week.
over 143 years, New Cathedral Cemetery has served the needs of the Catholic community of Baltimore and Central Maryland. New Cathedral is the only cemetery owned by the Archdiocese of Baltimore and is the final resting place for many religious orders and famous citizens. 125 acres of rolling hills, trees, and beautiful monuments, the cemetery is an oasis of peace and tranquility and is located off Edmondson Avenue just outside of Catonsville. New Cathedral is dedicated to the task of tending to the mortal remains of our dearly departed and has many more years of available space. If you are in need of a burial site, vault, monument, or marker, or just a respectful location to place your cremated loved ones, our counselors will help you through this process and make sure the wishes of you and your loved ones are honored. Visit us online at newcathedralcemetery.org, like us on Facebook at New Cathedral Cemetery Bonnie Bray, or call 410-566-7770. Join Catholic Review Media and the Archdiocese of Baltimore to see the Passion Play in Oberammergau, Germany, June 19th to 27th, 2020. Travel with Archbishop William E. Lorry, Father Michael Fapiano, and Father Jim Prophet on a nine-day, seven-night pilgrimage to Austria and Germany. Land-only price is projected at $3,399 per person, double occupancy. There are still a few spots remaining. Reserve your seat today by visiting archbalt.org slash passionplaypilgrimage. Again, that's archbalt.org slash passionplaypilgrimage. Life can be hard, and at times we feel overwhelmed and alone. When faced with problems, know that there is a group of Catholics who are part of the prayer ministry of the Archdiocese of Baltimore, waiting to lift you and your needs to God in prayer. This ministry is comprised of men and women, young and old, religious and lay, from every ethnic and cultural background. They pray as individuals and in groups, in homes and meeting spaces throughout Baltimore. Like you, they are people who have suffered the same hurts, fears, pains, sickness, loss, and everyday burdens. Learn more about this ministry by visiting our website at www.archbalt.org. If you are in need of prayer, send your prayer request to prayers at archbalt.org or by phone to 410-547-5517. Would you like to volunteer to be a part of the ministry? Prayer ministers are always needed. Please call or email our coordinator who would be happy to speak with you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Catholic Baltimore. As we prepare for the week ahead, let us do so in prayer together as one community of faith. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let us also ask the blessing and intercession of our Blessed Mother as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May God bless us and keep us always in his love.